Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. My name is Christian. I'm Aaron. My name's Justin. And we have got an exciting episode for you. Uh, on the pod this week, we have Scott Mulhauser, uh, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Vice President Joe Biden, uh, before leaving us in the country to head over to China to be the Chief of Staff to the Ambassador Bacchus um, over at the Chinese Embassy. And most recently, a fellow at the Georgetown Institute of Politics. Yeah, last fall. Uh, yeah, he led an awesome discussion section. I went to a lot of them because they were fascinating. Um, and he is a really fun guy. One of those people that you hear about in Washington who is loved by literally everybody. He's so popular. And here for all the right reasons. We uh, we get into a little bit about that with him. Uh, but before we do, uh, as always, subscribe, share with your friends. Um, love the pod as much as we love the pod. At Fly in the Wall pod, pod. At Fly in the Wall pod. On Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. All the fun social media networks. Um, interact with us. Tell us what you think. Give us your feedback. Tell us hashtag where you fly Wednesdays. All that fun stuff. Great. All right. Let's uh, let's jump into our first segment, which is tweet of the week. Uh, this is Justin's uh, favorite segment, so we're gonna let him uh, read off that tweet. It is. I mean, I, I go through Twitter enough that like you'd think I'd be able to find some fun ones. So this week's tweet of the week comes to us from Senator Ben Sass on his personal account at Ben Sass, um, and this was this is a funny one. He's got a sense of humor, that guy. Um, this is from the Nebraska football game last Saturday, it looks like. Um, and it's a picture of a particularly aged crowd uh, or section of the crowd. And this caption is, student section still lit. Uh, <laughs> obviously, a little bit of irony there because those people are very clearly not Nebraska students anymore. Um, but Do you think someone on his staff had to explain to him what lit was? Or do you think that was all him? Yeah, I like see, to I think he's that. pretty cool. He's like an Uber driver, right? Is he? Is that true? Isn't he? I think he like drives Uber to like meet people in his state and like have some fun. I could be entirely wrong. I'm gonna Google this as we as we talk. Yeah, there you go. I don't know. All right, let's move into what grinds your gears this week. Yeah, it's a CNBC article. Why this GOP senator also drives for Uber? There you go. Way to get in touch with the people, uh, Senator Sass. Well, if you ever hop into an Uber and it's Senator Sass, tell him we say hi. Uh, cool. Okay, so yeah, this week's uh, Grind Our Gears is debates, and uh, specifically those televised debates that you see on national television um, and are, you know, huge candidates. Doesn't necessarily have to be for president or vice president, um, but frankly, I've never watched a debate outside of president and vice president. And why is this topic so relevant for this podcast, Christian? Uh, because we are going to get into uh, debate prep and the spin room with Scott Mulhauser when he was doing the vice presidential debate between uh, Vice President Ryan or Vice President Biden, excuse me, and uh, Speaker of the House now, uh, Paul Ryan, but was vice president. I really bungled this one. <laughs> <laughs> why don't you get us started? Okay, cool. Uh, so I think my biggest problem uh, with debates is, okay, so there, can I get two? Is that allowed? Mm, yeah, if you keep them short. Okay, cool. Um, I think my biggest problem with debates is, number one, uh, it is like the greatest possible thing in a debate to complain about the fact that you didn't get enough debate time. <laughs> and like that gets a clap from like literally everyone in the place. <laughs> uh, like immediately, like the guys who are on the side um, are always like, oh, well, I'm glad you finally asked me a question. When it's like they've gotten three questions before, but they necessarily just haven't talked as much. Um, and that always gets like an applause line and everyone's like, ha so relatable. That really bothers me. I really don't like that. Um, and like, if you're going to complain the entire time on a debate stage, like I'm probably not going to vote for you just purely out of the fact that you're complaining. Like, you know, use the time that you have. And yeah, obviously these debates aren't always equally uh, timed out, but like, spending your time that you have that you're complaining about has like you don't have a lot of uh 
doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, I just don't one. I'm done. Okay. <laughs> um, I can go. Cool. So what grinds my gears about political debates? I think um, this is sort of specific with presidential, but you see it in a lot is they really get hyped up as like these kind of like, if you don't do well, like you're going to trash your candidacy thing. And I don't think that's really fair. Um, I understand why it happens. It's like it's one of the candidates only times to like speak directly to that big of an audience. And like there's an opportunity to really like kind of punch back at your opponent. You're on the same stage. You're facing each other um, like in the same room, things like that. But I really think they get blown out of proportion. Um and in a way that probably isn't the best for like a good substantive election because i mean you see these debates especially nowadays there's only so much policy they really get into it becomes a really talking point heavy really kind of like this is why my message my campaign my party's better than yours um they're even starting to get into like pretty personal attacks at this point which is disappointing so i just think they're a little out of proportion at this point i do however that being said think there's a good opportunity um, for actual substantive policy debates. Um, I want to give a quick shout out. CNN's been doing a few of these um, with the healthcare debate, with the tax reform debate, bringing senators on to actually talk out the substance, obviously not as widely viewed as presidential debates, but getting more, um, in my opinion, to what debates are meant to be. I really have no problem with presidential debates. I would say that what grinds my gears is that there aren't enough. I love these things. Like I'm the kid who sits in front of the TV with like a legal pad and like, well, basically follow the entire debate mapping out arguments and scoring candidates and, and rating who who won on what yeah i'm a nerd i get i'm getting these whispers in the in the studio um but i love it i love to see these people spar i love to see good conversation even if it's not always uh substantive i like to see two people going head to head uh and i like playing a little game called like who's actually answering questions and who's spinning and who's spinning well and uh you know trying to see you know, looking towards the future at, you know, perhaps my own career, um, you know, how people can spin out of some rather pointed questions. Uh, so I, I eat these things up. I absolutely love them. So I, my only beef is that there aren't enough. Yeah, very fair criticism. Hey, Aaron, don't you hate when... Ready, watch this pivot. This isn't going to work. No, yeah, it is. When a politician just goes off on a debate and it totally screws with the staff and their plan and their messaging, what would you do? Um... You don't have an answer. Guess who does have an answer? Scott Mulhauser. Was that the point? Yeah. <laughs> Were you really supposed to stump, stump me there? No, but but it, I, I worked it out. <laughs> so this week on the pod, we're going to be talking to Scott um, a little bit about all of his experiences. Um, he's got a couple of really cool experiences, a couple of which we're going to be talking about. Um, him sparring about def, def, uh, debt deficit fights uh, with uh, his now friend, Michael Steele. Um, they're and so cute. We see them getting like YCs together. They're like a, a bromance. Yeah, they're pretty adorable. Um, different sides of the aisle and became friends in uh, what I would assume is these debt deficit fights. Uh, but we're going to find out on this podcast. Uh, we're also going to talk to him about a couple of times uh, where he's had to deal with uh, communications for Vice President Biden. Uh, for example, when Biden came out for gay marriage back in 2012 before the president um, and he had to deal with all of that. And then also when uh, he was working for the vice president, when he was doing uh, debates um, with uh, Paul Ryan, uh, really exciting stories he's going to tell us. Um, and he's just a really good guy to talk to about all of these things. Scott Mulhauser, welcome to the podcast. Uh, you know, I will say at the outset that when we envisioned this podcast, um, you were one of the first people I thought about of like, yep, we got to have Scott on at some point. I don't know when. 
Um, so it is really exciting to finally get you on. Well, look, James, it's, it's great to be here. Excited to be here. I mean, I'm going to point out that you didn't invite me first, so I made Buster Chops about that later. No, okay. it's um, it's great to be here. I can't think of more fun than I've had with my geopolitics semester, and it's great to be back on campus teaching, and I am both a proud Hoya alum, um, a Hoya Law School alum, a proud Hoya basketball fan, and excited to be on the podcast. So thanks for having me. Hard to be a proud Hoya basketball fan. Right. It, it is, is. It is hard now. the new Ewing era, who knows? Yeah, no, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Uh, let's dive right into this interview. And I think a great place to start off because you've, um, I hesitate to say creature of the swamp, but you've uh, you've been in D.C. and in and around politics uh, for a lot of your career. Um, and you just seem to love it. You exude this passion for doing what you do. Uh, so I think that begs a natural first question. What inspired you just to jump into politics and make that sort of what you wanted to do with your time in your life? Well, it's a great question. And, and thanks again for having me and for for um, for thinking about it. That way. Hey, look, it's fun to think about. It. I grew up in D.C., without a political connection in the world, right? But when you grow up here, local news is national news and national news is local news, mm-hmm. right? And it just becomes habit. And I tried a bunch of things on for size and I just, once I knew that politics and government and media and sort of figuring out the intersection of all of it mattered to me, it's hard to do anything else. I mean, I went to law school and tried to practice and that lasted me a year and I came back here in a different role. But once you are bitten by the bug of this thing, the thing you guys get to record and get involved in through geopolitics, the thing that a lot of your listeners love, it's it's an addiction. And, I mean, you may joke about me being sort of a creature of the swamp, but... <laughs> it's in the kindest way possible because no, we, we want to uh, be the same. No, I think that sort of... I think of it having come from this world where I didn't know the swamp, I just liked reading news every day and I would wake up and you know at the time read the actual paper every day and one became two and two became three and three became five and I think you know you've been bitten by something when you're randomly I taught myself to read by reading the newspaper (laughs) and you know you know when you are sitting there in college reading a bunch of papers every day and you come back every summer to throw yourself into the DC morass you know it's time to jump in and I mean, I came back after college when every other one of my friends took an investment banking or consulting job hmm. for a lot of money. I'm <laughs> we, sure you guys know as well. <laughs> um, and I came back and took an unpaid internship in Washington. I mean, it was in the White House. But nonetheless, it was something that <laughs> I knew. I figured the best way to jump in is to just throw yourself in face first, feet first, whatever sort of works. And I just jumped in. And from there, you know, worked on Capitol Hill and 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 worked my way up um, – I think being a little bit scrappy, but also kind of loving to write and argue and debate. And I quickly found myself in press jobs and communications jobs. And that turned into sort of that plus lawyering jobs. I mean, I will tell you, I have a fun sort of tale of this place, which I which I told our students and I think really resonated, which is I came here with that. And then the first year I was in Washington, they decided to impeach President Clinton. Hmm. The first year I was I was working professionally, they impeached the president. And well, that had never happened before. And that was, I mean, it hadn't happened, well, sorry, it hadn't happened since 1860, <laughs> right? So that hadn't happened sorry. in 130 plus years, right? And so you're like, okay, you think to yourself, well, that's amazing. Well, nothing like that will ever happen again. I'm sure I'll just fold into, you know, doing what my, you know, go to med school, go to law school, go, you know, work in business, do something else. And what happened was for the better part of the last two decades, something crazy like that has happened and thrown and thrown me and into the middle of this crazy cauldron. I mean, I went to the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee for my sort of second job. And what that was was going campaign to campaign. 
and teaching them how to communicate, when to go on offense, when to go on defense, when to write that op-ed, when to farm that op-ed out to a surrogate, when to sort of throw that punch with all your might and when to say, you know what, let's save that till October so it can be a more effective punch. You know, how to, and it was teaching everyone from existing senators who were rusty on through nascent farmers and ranchers who wanted to run for office. And so you sort of went around the country and as you were teaching them, you were sort of reminding yourself of these great campaign tactics. And actually with a former Republican foil of mine and a former GU politics fellow, Michael Steele, we're teaching class now on campaign management. But but I say that in that in that job after job, you got thrown into these crazy circumstances. And we talked about impeachment. Well, the year after that, I went and I worked with the, the, what they called the DSCC, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. And at the end of the cycle, you're entirely useless in Washington. Your value is to go out to campaign to campaign. So last month, I helped a insurance commissioner running for Senate in Florida, a guy named Bill Nelson, um, run and win a Senate race in Florida in the year 2000. We know what else happened in election night in 2000 in Tallahassee, Florida? Mm, pretty boring. I pretty boring, right? <laughs> oh, wait, <Quiet> that's <laughs> right. Bush versus Gore. And so I stayed in Tallahassee and got thrown into the craziest presidential election, well, until the last one, perhaps, <laughs> of our lifetimes, and where you didn't know day by day who was going to win. And I spent some time down there after the election helping the DNC and the Gore campaign set up, and there were debt and deficit fights. I got to work for the vice president and, and you know, and, and, and fight with him and President Obama on behalf of, you know, a lot of what we believed in. But it, it's been an unbelievable two decades. And part of it is, you know, you just want to try to make this world a better place. And if you can help and jump into the headlines you're already reading anyway, if you have fun doing it, it's not work. Something you alluded to a little bit and something we really want to talk to you a little bit about is these congressional deficit fights, because it seems like that's, you know, politics at its core, you know, you know, sitting down in a room and negotiating. So talk to us about what it's actually like to run these negotiations. So these negotiations are often they, – they come in various factions, right? At the, at the way they're supposed to work is these committees are supposed to work out these processes and send them up to the Senate or the House and have them have them negotiate. So every one of these – you're getting work like a speed bag by every one of these interests who sort of wants to make sure that their patients and their constituencies and their state matter. So you just – someone analogized to me once as sort of an NFL running back carrying a football where you're just trying to get down the field and get a piece of legislation you believe in done. And everyone wants to stop you, send you in a different direction, hold you up, you know, either tackle you for a loss or just sort of shift you in a, in a way that helps them. And it is intense. And I remember at one point we were negotiating um, for an unemployment insurance extension, something the Democrats were pushing for and something the Republicans wanted to sunset or end. And at one point it was a room, a committee hearing room that turned into a sidebar conference room that turned into a small chairman's room that turned into a supply closet. And there were actually four of us or five of us negotiating because the rooms kept getting smaller because you just wanted to sort of work it out with a small and small group. It literally became a bunch of us squeezed into a tiny closet trying to negotiate the last final pieces of it. Wow. It was nuts. And it is – you want an open, transparent process. And despite hearings and, you know, at some point the challenge is how do you do that and also get things done? Because some of that open process, opponents of where you are going are doing everything they can to blow up your process. It's much easier to savage and bomb throw. And in the old movie, The Bridge Over the River Kwai, they spend months and months and months building this bridge. And it takes one minute and a little bit of dynamite to blow the whole thing up. And when you're in these rooms and you're negotiating with these people, like how candid are you? Like, I mean, you're obviously off the record. I mean, there are no cameras around. Like, what are you guys really talking about? 
So the assumption is, and I am often outside spinning this to reporters as much as I am. So, you know, you sort of play both the inside game and the outside game. And candidly, you know that a lot of what you offer, particularly if it's controversial or valuable to the other side, or is a yield of nothing, you know it's going to get leaked. And so the game you play is how to deploy those in a targeted manner. So the room itself is sometimes candid, but it depends on who's in the room and how much trust and belief there is. That's why those committees, where you've worked for a long, long time, I think what we'll talk about today, what we talked about, we referenced earlier, with Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray, is they built up trust. And it's not perfect, and they both know they're they're advocating on behalf of broader caucuses and broader causes and, and their party, but they can sort of engage in some thought experiments and try back and forth. But um, speaking of, of debt and deficit fights you mentioned earlier, there's sort of a fun story that Michael Steele and I used to tell. We were there during this debt and deficit super committee that was supposed to solve all of our problems. But I would say to you that I think the Republicans were never really engaged and were fine letting it blow up. They would probably come up with a different spiel. But at one point, we felt like we had an offer that showed our goodwill, that showed a innovative batch of thinking and show innovative dose of thinking that I think we thought showed we were being constructive and we were willing to negotiate. So we let them spin their wheels for a couple of days, sort of trying to accuse us of X or Y. And then right around late afternoon, early evening time, I knew that on behalf of the Democrats in the House and the Senate, if I could drop this to reporters, I could pick up a great day's news story and a bunch of traction. So somewhere between about 4.30 and about 5.30, I called a bunch of print reporters, a bunch of network reporters, and a couple wire services. And I said, just so you know, the Democrats made this good faith offer. And I got a lot of impressed looks from reporters who then, of course, needed Republican feedback. What well, turns out somewhere around 5.30, uh, Michael Steele, who was one of the chief spokespeople for the House Republicans and was candidly, or actually for the entire Republican effort, was candidly doing a lot of the backgrounding for reporters as I was for Democrats, um, had just left for dinner with his, his fiance, who is, they are now dear friends of ours. So after the third call, the fourth call, the fifth call, Michael's sitting at Ruth's Chris trying to enjoy his dinner. And someone would say, a senior would call him and say, a reporter he knows and trusts, would call him and say, this senior Democratic aide in the intensity of negotiations claims the Democrats made the following concessions in what seems like a pretty good faith effort. And Michael, after the fifth call, said, you tell that senior Democratic aide, screw it. You tell Scott <laughs> Mulhauser that I'm trying to enjoy dinner with my fiance. And I think, and to leave me alone and let me enjoy my dinner. Oh, he knew um, it. And he knew <laughs> gotcha. it. Right. I mean, I think you respect, um, I know you've had some some other friends of mine who are Republican operatives on the podcast, including Michael, but you respect the talented and savvy folks from the other side who can play the game as well as you do. And you'd like to live in a Washington where you can have a beer after that fight. And you do often enough. You're listening to the flagship geopolitics podcast, Fly on the Wall, and we'll be right back. This week's political fun fact comes to you from a really interesting campaign in 2004 uh, between President George W. Bush and John Kerry who turn out to be very distant cousins, uh, which is a really exciting thing. Uh, they are very distantly related, and they ran against each other for president of the United States. 
Um, they are, in fact, ninth cousins, twice removed. Um, I don't know what that means. So if anyone has any idea what ninth cousins, twice removed really means practically, uh, feel free to let me know. This actually reminds me of a theory that I once read and I actually pulled it up on Wikipedia so I can quote it. Um, but it's called the most royal candidate theory. And it's a theory that the winning candidate in every U.S. presidential election has the greatest amount of royal blood in their pedigree. And I think there's a, there's an actual like theory that traces every single president from George Washington to Barack Obama to King John, with only one exception. And who do you think that exception is? Abe Lincoln. No. Who is it, Aaron? Martin Van Buren is the only U.S. president not to be a descendant of King John. Wouldn't have guessed him. So you got two fun facts in one. Forgot he was a president. So I think you made a great point about you know using tactics to sort of push along the message you want to get out there and, and sort of push along policy as well. Uh, but sometimes you can't necessarily be as proactive as you'd like. Sometimes you're playing sort of the reactive game. And I think uh, to pivot a little bit, one of the instances where we've seen this in your career uh, was in May of 2012 when Vice President Biden went on Meet the Press and said that he was uh, absolutely comfortable with men marrying men, essentially expressing support for gay marriage. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about um, that and sort of how you manage that uh, in your capacity staffing Biden, uh, especially considering that this, he was coming out ahead of uh, President Barack Obama at the time in terms of uh, his support for, for marriage equality. So a couple of interesting things come from your question. So I started as Deputy Chief of Staff to Vice President Biden in April of 2012, and that happened Ooh, wow. in May of 2012. So um, <laughs> let's just say, <laughs> uh, if you need a welcome to... The TM moment, that was certainly it. Um, it was it was Vice President Joe Biden on the right side of history and at his best being candid and forward-leaning and smart and thoughtful. It was also Vice President Biden getting ahead of a campaign and a president that hadn't publicly announced that position yet. And so while it had its unique and pretty special moment in terms of him and the not just the LGBTQ community, but everyone who supports it. And his advocacy started, if you'll recall, a bunch of other senior officials in Congress and in President Obama's administration coming out in support of that same position. It was a tough moment for the campaign because it put the president in a box. And the president had a plan to deploy that news later and I th and had a rollout and had a had a but you know the vice president got asked a question and he answered it yeah he answered it honestly and he answered it sincerely and it's a wonderful moment that a lot of us that care about this cause care about and are proud of that said as a campaign operative and a staffer who likes when everything rows together and is coherent on a messaging front it was a tough moment. 
So how did you react in that moment when you you look up at the TV monitor and, and there it is? So we were actually I was in Chicago at the time. Wow. In meetings um, at our at the campaign headquarters, but listened in. What many don't know is it was recorded on a Friday to run on a Sunday. So we actually had about thirty six hours of heads up that this was coming. Wow. And so they recorded it. We listened live. Knew immediately that sort of it was newsworthy, and so I think the campaign. And the White House worked together to get ahead of it and alert um, the relevant groups to let them know that, I mean, at the moment it happens, planned or not, you, the, the, the bus is built so you get on board, right? I mean, so the, tra- the train's on the tracks and you just go, right? So I think the campaign did an effective job of using it to marshal. I mean, it took a little while in the subsequent weeks for sort of the rest of Democratic Washington and sort of to come around and know that's where their hearts and their heads were, but to sort of adjust to the new reality that and the the door this had opened, right? But in that moment, you figure, okay, the only way to do it is to get ahead of it. So the Obama campaign smartly in the White House um, worked with their allies to let them know that sort of this was a big statement, that this was coming. And the idea being, even if internally there was some tension because he got ahead of the president, externally you wanted to turn this into a, the historic moment that I think a lot of us thought it was. The idea being, let's get this as a triumphant moment when you are doing everything from looking for support from LGBTQ voters on through looking for sort of a framework of your administration as sort of leaders and proactive thinkers on through sort of the more specifics of the fundraising dollars and other things that will potentially come with it from folks who care about this cause and now see you on the front end of it. So at that point, the cat is out of the bag and you just have to run with it. And so then you just deal with the resulting tactical decisions to embrace it. And I think campaign leadership and White House leadership did a very nice job along with the Biden team of harnessing a tough tactical, a tough sort of moment of tension between the two of them. I remember um, the vice president coming and saying to us, you know, Brock and I have worked it out and, you know, we're telling us, previewing for us the, what the president was going to say. He, uh, I believe, interviewed with Robin Roberts later that week where he came out and and made clear what his own position was, which was to also be in favor of, of gay marriage. And I think it was tense at the time but looking back, you realize what a real moment it was that turned into everything. I mean, it didn't turn into. It's been a decades-long fight. But it sort of helped galvanize support for something that means a lot to a lot of us. So talk to us a little bit about the tactics you specifically employed. So you had about 36 hours lead time. So you're in Chicago. All right, what's step one? Who are you calling? Who are you talking to? How do you game plan? I literally walked down the hall um, to the campaign leadership at the time included Jim Messina, who was the Obama campaign manager, right. um, and a host of others from Stephanie Cutter onward, who sort of um, ran um, distinct pieces of the campaign. And so you kind of have no choice but to send them the transcript the moment you got it, confer with the White House that they were sort of doing the same thing, and sort of take the issue to your um, colleagues and know that a tense moment was – and what you had to convey and make clear was – the vice president believed this, but this was not a planned effort to distance himself from the president. This was David Gregory asking Joe Biden a question and him answering it honestly, 
right? He he referenced an event he'd been at where the issue would come up. He talked about Will and Grace and his own evolution on the issue. Um, but it was not anything that he had prepped for. It was not anything that the campaign or the White House had signaled to NBC that we'd like to be asked. But it resulted in some tense moments because no matter what side of history you're on, you know, campaigns are about plans and deploying your plans and the message of the day and and what you want to get out there. And this upended the message of the day and the week for the better part of, you know, seven to ten days because you not only had to sort of deal with his fallout vis-a-vis the president, vis-a-vis the presidential campaign. Um, and I think something you said, too, is that, I mean, that was, I think most of us on the back end remember that moment as like an incredibly historic moment where Democrats came out and said, this is an issue that we're on this side of. And I think it's interesting to see, um, you know, you being in the room when that actually happened is a really cool moment for us. I was, it was, I remember looking, I was in, I shared a room with, uh, with Vice President Biden's chief of staff on the 2012 presidential campaign, a woman named Sheila Nix, who's wonderful. And she and I looked at each other when that came out and we sort of said, sort of that was something. And I got a bunch of calls from the staff in Washington and Chicago um, who'd either been listening in or who'd been with him on the ground and said, kind of, what do you think? What does it feel like? How concretely did he? And I remember taking notes during the taping and thinking to myself while I was listening in, thinking to myself, you know, nothing else in this interview matters. Um, this one sure does. And it took some short-term pain on the campaign and the White House front, but I think everyone understood where to be. And I think that you get immense credit for flipping that switch and everybody just going. Definitely. Um, so I, mean, I don't think I get immense credit. I think the <laughs> sort of I think the Obama White House, the Obama campaign, the Biden operation, and sort of Democratic campaigns, candidates, and elected officials. I've rarely seen an issue. I think you typically in this world get a lot of time to think through your positions. Not everyone is Donald Trump sort of trying speeches and ideas out on the stump. They're typically long, carefully thought out policy positions of watching everyone, some of whom had either never been asked the question or hadn't been asked the question or had a pat answer about what they thought. Everyone turned and they turned the right way. And it's, 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 it's great. You're listening to Fly on the Wall. We'll be right back. Our Politico's As Real People this week comes to us from Francesca Chambers, who is the White House correspondent for Daily Mail. Um, And she relayed to us through Twitter uh, an interesting exchange that happened in the Senate hearing room today. Uh, So I will read her tweet first and then explain it. I kid you not, Ben Sass had to apologize to Jeff Sessions for accidentally spilling Dr. Pepper on Ted Cruz and creating a distraction. So Jeff Sessions was testifying uh, in the Senate today, and evidently the senators were um, not goofing off, I guess, but not paying a whole lot of attention either, caused a commotion, and actually interrupted the hearing um, because Ted Cruz got Dr. Pepper spilled on him. Poor guy. So, wait, did Ben Sass have to apologize to Ted Cruz or, no. like, to the committee? See, see, I didn't get the story of what went down between Senator Sass and Senator Cruz, just that Ben Sass apologized to Jeff Sessions for evidently interrupting the entire hearing the very high stakes hearing which was going on today because he spilled soda all over the desk and Ted Cruz. See, the, the cynical 
communications marketing person in me wants to say that that was a big ploy oh, by Dr. Pepper. Absolutely. There, I mean, if you really want to get into this, there's like conspiracy theories on conspiracy theories about this on Twitter. So go for it, guys. But sometimes politics is less house of cardsy than we'd like to think. So another big moment in that campaign and for, you know, the Biden camp was uh, that 2012 vice presidential debate between uh, Biden and Ryan. So talk to us a little bit about it, what it's like for you prepping for that debate. I mean, are you doing a lot of work on the front end or is a lot of your work coming back on the back end for these debates? You know, what are, what is your role in these debates? So I had I have both been in a bunch of debate prep over my years of doing this. And I've also been kind of on the outside telling everybody about the debate prep and so debate prep is both an interesting exercise and an interesting tactical exercise because essentially what you're doing is you're setting your bar low and (laughs) and their bar high right so if you're george bush debating al gore everyone knew al gore was sort of a seasoned debater and everyone sort of had their presuppositions about george bush and so when george w bush was reasonable enough as a debate performer that was enough of a threshold that people thought he sort of alongside Al Gore's size won a bunch of debates in 2000, right? So it is amazing how the debate frame sets up so much of your debate success or failure. So I spent a lot of my time in 2012 framing that narrative for – so I was spent a lot of time in Chicago and some time in Washington and then I got there early ahead of the debate in, in Kentucky and I spent my time earlier than most – walking these rows of reporters, dialing and dialing and dialing to lay out, knowing what was happening in that room, right? Getting the sort of um, daily updates and sort of, you know, hearing how it was going, the pros and the cons and sort of, you know, and I think if you recall, President Obama had a less than ideal first debate. Right. Um, He, it was the best moment for the Romney campaign in 2012. And everyone knew that there's nothing Joe Biden loves more than punching back. Right. So sort of someone takes a swing at you, you get right back up and you swing back. Right. And so it was a great moment for him. And candidly, the biggest challenge was how to dial him back. In 2008, his debates had been against Sarah Palin and the optics and how you manage that sort of are a unique challenge. I mean, there are a host of ways in which you can come across terribly in debates and you really have to manage yourself in that process. But with Paul Ryan, I think. There's a lot Joe Biden relishes, but not much more of it than telling someone who's sort of heavy on policy chops the way it is in the real world and the way their draconian policy ought to be. So we spent a lot of time setting the expectation that Paul Ryan was a remarkably sort of well-versed in the details of policy and substance, had been sort of outlining Republican policy for the more than a decade, was the architect of a lot of what they stood for. You know, sort of who better? He's a little bit of sort of uh, an automaton robot and that he can sort of continue to sort of pitch Republican talking points almost as if sort of, you know, plugged in and sort of, you know, we pitched him as a disciplined message, but we kind of knew that, 
he would put videos out about Republican tax plans, but you sort of wondered how he would be sparring one-on-one, especially against a guy who loves to spar. So the idea was promote Paul Ryan. It's odd to think right, that a Democrat's out there promoting how good a Republican will be in the debate, right? But all you want to do is set up a bar that you can cross, a threshold that you can you can sort of easily step over. So that's what we did, was we set up this notion that Paul Ryan was going to be um, expert in enunciating all this stuff, that, you know, you could draw your own sort of notions of what you thought Biden was, but sort of, you know, we tried to set Paul Ryan up as this expert and see where he landed. So needless to say, when Joe Biden came out fighting, which was A, the moment Democrats were dying for at that point, and B, I think knocked Ryan back on his heels a little bit, we were gleeful. And the room, there is a room where the senior White House and campaign staff were sitting right um, next to the actual sort of um, debate stage where you're sort of conferring on what your message of the day is and you're tweeting out things and you're sort of, you know, you're – and that exists in campaign headquarters and and, um, and in other places too. But sort of the room right next door was so loud and so boisterous that at times you couldn't hear the debate and because everyone was cheering so loudly. And I think you just wanted someone to say, hang on a second. Here's what's really going on. And what Joe Biden does better than almost anyone I've ever seen in, in 20 years of, of, of doing this and in, you know, 40 years of watching this, he articulates what sort of ethereal policy means for you, means for you. So what for you, Christian, is the impact of the, you know, Paul Ryan can talk about the impact of his Medicaid cuts and everyone thinks he's a nice guy and it won't impact grandma. But it turns out she won't be able to pay her bills on X and Y. He can talk about it personally from from the sort of Biden family stories. He can talk about it. And he calls himself sort of a fingertip politician. And he has that touch. And I think if you if there's ever a moment to translate arcane, difficult policy into real life stuff, it's at a presidential or vice presidential debate when the stakes are high. And he came out swinging. And all Republicans had to push back on him was, well, he was a little bit aggressive and he was sort of smiling and laughing a little bit too much. If that's all you've got, you know, when the classic thing is when you're explaining you're losing and they were explaining because they were losing. And we were so confident. And often debates are, are won or lost in those first half hour, 45 minutes when those pivotal moments you can sort of when when viewership's at its apex. When those first questions come out, that's when if you, you sort of land a punch, it's most effective. We were so confident in sort of the fact he'd struck the right notes. We came out before the debate was over to the spin room and a bunch of us, campaign surrogates, we had senators visiting from all of Jack Reed and a host of others who came in to be supportive. Um, and to all of us from, from the campaign team on through the sort of surrogates we had brought in for the debate, fanned out into the spin room early before the debate was even over hoping that sort of, you know, whatever came at the end didn't matter because we had 30 of us in the spin room ready to talk about what a great job Joe Biden did. So by the time they asked about something that came in minute hour 20, you could say, look, from what I saw, X or Y or Z. And it was a great way to codify that Democrats had come back at a tough moment, that Joe Biden helped bring Democrats back after a real tough moment. And it was a, Democrats were, were reeling. I think people were, worried and it was great to see him bring along with Obama's second debate performance and his third one to really help bring the distinctions between the two parties back into focus and the two candidates. Well, 
on this podcast, we've never really been inside that spin room. So take a second and walk us around uh, what it's like, especially post-debate, to be in there and and what you're doing and and what your objective is, who you're talking to, how you decide, you know, which reporters you're going to spend your time spinning. You talk us, walk us a little bit through, you know, the tactics in that room. Sure. So each side has somewhere between, depending, you know, somewhere between five and 40 um, surrogates were there on their behalf. And those are everything from campaign staff to folks you've brought in to make a message. So if you think you're going to hit a point on veterans, you bring in members, the chair of the Armed Services Committee or members of Congress or mayors or governors or others who are veterans who can sort of stand, stand there on your behalf. So you want to be able to bolster a point wherever you need to. So if you're going to make a point that Mitt Romney has statement about how he has binders full of women is sort of preposterous because you don't need binders full of women to find candidates as Mitt Romney noted. You just need the women you work alongside of you every day to be considered for high profile positions. So I think you want to then have surrogates that can speak to that issue. If you're going to talk about gay marriage, you want to have surrogates that can come out and talk to that issue. So what you are doing is ahead of the game, you are coming up with a composition, a sort of tapestry of folks that you think can speak to anything that will come up where you want to play some offense or you want to play some defense. And I think you bring those folks out and you flood the zone with all of them, but you want to steer reporters to either things from the debate you thought were memorable And you are huddling and you are saying sort of in that room, the sort of before you get to the spin room, that room we talked about where we're all watching and cheering, you want to sort of say, okay, these are the top three things everyone's going to hit when we come out. Wow, did did this candidate look unprepared? Or wow, did he nail him with his third answer on, you know, because that helps with your broader campaign message. And you want to drive home not just that you want to debate because that's somewhat ephemeral and somewhat sort of temporary you want to you want to talk about why winning that debate or winning on these couple issues resonates as part of your broader campaign message so you go out you get these folks who come to basically say whatever is helpful um on your behalf and they have to believe it but and then you arm them with a couple points and then you hope they say the right stuff in that room and there are signs up with um with each of the surrogates and 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 reporters gather around, and what happens is early on they gravitate to. You typically don't have the candidate themselves. It's 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 happened rarely. You typically don't have the candidate itself in the spin room. You have all, all their surrogates, but you then sort of all the reporters flood in, and folks on both sides are making the case. And as reporters dwindle because deadlines are approaching, and as surrogates dwindle, you can really begin to kind of, particularly if you know these reporters, you can really begin to kind of work the. Edges, And you can say, oh, there's this reporter from NBC. What are they thinking? And then you try to sort of push back. Or you then grab either yourself or someone who you think can talk to that issue. And they say, okay, you have a question about where they stand on um, housing policy? Well, hey, I've got a former you know, HUD secretary or an urban mayor here who's happy to sort of speak to that. So you, it's a really a game of hand-to-hand tactics. And there are a half dozen versions of me on the other side doing the same thing. And you are both giving quotes and you are steering them to the folks that, many of them on background, also to sort of other folks you think can be even more effective surrogates. Because ultimately, a neutral campaign story is candidates sparred on taxes and um, foreign policy. A story you really want is, you know, Obama or Biden or this senator or that governor um, hit 
opponent hard on X or Y or sort of, you know, if candidates trade barbs, it's sort of an okay story. But you want your TV clip and your print clip to resonate with a message that helps you in your campaign. And every minute of that spin room is dedicated to doing exactly that. Definitely. Uh, so we're going to uh, wrap up here pretty soon. But we have two segments we want to go through. Um, we have our hot take segment and our lightning round segment. Uh, now, <laughs> um, cue cool sound noises. Uh, <laughs> I do do a lot of post-production to slip some cool sound effects <laughs> I in can't, there. I can't. I'm not sure I'm going to listen to myself talk, but I do want to hear your sound effects. <laughs> you just skip to like 35. That's right. That's right. <laughs> You're the sound effect. Uh, so to preface this hot take a little bit, um, something we have heard a lot in DC um, and something I feel like we see a lot with you is uh, Scott Mohauser was kind of the guy that everybody loves. I mean, you get along with pretty much everyone in DC, um, including uh, Michael Steele, who we previously had on this podcast. Um, and Michael Steele is, um, if you guys didn't listen to the episode, uh, worked for Boehner. He was Boehner's guy for a long time. Um, on the other side of the aisle, you know, in the other side of the room on these negotiations. Uh, so we wanted to, you know, in the spirit of GU politics, ask you a question um, and ask a student a question about uh, what it's like to be friends with people on the other side of the aisle. Um, so the question uh, that we propose to Harrison Nugent is, um, in being a, in a predominantly liberal campus, how hard is it to make friends with someone from the other side of the political aisle? And do you ever feel like you are compromising your values? Uh, so we're going to play that clip from Harrison, and then you can just respond sure. you know, with any of your thoughts. What a great, what a great segment. Uh, well, to answer the second half of the question, uh, I've never compromised my values uh, to make friends. Uh, I, I enjoy having friends, but I've never, you know, uh, lie to them about a political belief I've had. Uh, at the same time, I've never avoided someone just because of their political beliefs. Uh, whether you're on the right or the left side of the aisle, like that's not really important to me. I think there's more important things about a person's character uh, when evaluating a friend. Uh, but at the same time, I will I will say though that I have at times uh, like concealed my Republican identity, like with people that I've just met, uh, because I, I don't know how they're going to react to it. Like sometimes I know that people are hostile towards Republicans, you know, especially with like Donald Trump as our president, uh, and uh, I mean a pretty ineffective Congress. Uh, there's a lot of hostility towards Republicans nowadays. And so it's, it's often inconvenient to sort of conceal your identity uh, and talk about things that aren't so hyper-political with other people all the time. Uh, but otherwise, I'm really appreciative that there are Democrats on campus to talk to because I, I uh, it challenges my own belief a lot, uh, my, my conservative beliefs. Yeah, so your thoughts? Look, we're a better functioning government when both sides can talk to each other, even when you can't agree. I think what folks like Michael and I and a host of others, I know some you've had on your podcast like Doug High and and others um, and Marlin and just the mission of this place, this geopolitics and, and what they're teaching at McCourt, that sort of how to make government and how to make politics and how to make public service work better starts with having a conversation. The more you shut the other side out, the more – I am as – many, many times – I'm as ardent a Democrat as you can get on a number of issues, right? But you know what? I find that I can, you know, perhaps pull a Republican on board a certain issue if I sort of have a real conversation with them. Or I can say to them, how about you soften your opposition or sit this one out? And you can sort of figure out what the pressure points are on the other side and they can say, we can't from a leadership endorse this. We have 20 members that might come along with you, and that might be the votes you need to pass. Um, and conversely, they can signal when they're going to throw a punch your way, so you can be a little bit – I mean, 
Washington funks better even in an adversarial place when both sides are talking to each other. I mean, I have very good friends, including Michael, that are Republican. And I do not, nor will not, compromise my values to do so. What I am doing is learning how the other side thinks. It's great tactically because you, you are at your best as an um, as a someone who's sort of sometimes engaged in this sort of tactical back and forth and strategic back and forth. You are at your best when you are learning how the other side thinks. It informs you better as you make your own arguments. It helps you get results. I mean, literally the, th- the discussion group I led at Geopolitics was called How to Make Washington Work When No One Thinks It Can. And the idea there is, you know what? You can find moments. I'm, I, I'll go back to this healthcare moment from today. I'll go back to a host of other things where sort of we work together on, you know, a piece of tax pieces and other, other pieces. You can, you can get things done. It's not, it's not regular. It's not often. But there are issues that theoretically should rise above politics. I mean, I think this the opioid crisis we're dealing with right now is hopefully something that people on all sides care about and can can get behind. How you deal with it is obviously different. I think Democrats would probably be more willing to throw funding at it, and Republicans would, you know, look to a, a host of other solutions. But you'd like to think that a you can find if you're talking to the other side, you can find your issues of commonality. You can a better hone your, you can a find your issues of commonality. B better hone your arguments, and C it doesn't have to be such an acerbic place with middle fingers raised and shouting, you can have a thoughtful discussion about where we are. If you aren't having those conversations, you're not going to succeed in government, in politics, or in any of this world. And so it just starts by talking. And I think that's where that desire of relationship, the desire to have those relationships come from. And I think it's had real yield. That's really inspiring. And I just want to say, Scott, like, a lot of people can talk the talk. You definitely walk the walk. And we um, we love your bromance with Michael Steele. We love every time you two are together uh, at events and on campus. And it's just so awesome to, to see you guys have formed that relationship. Even though uh, about half an hour ago, you were telling us about he threw press bombs at each other back and forth for years. So <laughs> We had dinner with Michael. My wife and I had dinner with him uh, about a week or two ago. Um, a great Chinese restaurant um, that I will happily recommend after some years in China um, <laughs> um, as needed. But no, it... um. It's it's what you want, right? If people just engage a little bit more, things could work a little bit better. Definitely. Um, well, on that note, let's move into our lightning round. Uh, we have really cool sound effects. I will tell one. you the audio. Uh, for those of you living this live, the audio graphics, the audio, the audio is spectacular. <laughs> Um, so we're just going to ask you a couple really quick questions, yeah. and you can feel free to just respond. You know, in thirty seconds or less, with your immediate sure. thoughts. Uh, so first question for you is Michael Steele, beard or no beard? No beard. <laughs> really? I kind of like the beard look. It's his current Twitter profile picture, so that's just how I sort of normally... Yeah, it still throws me off a little bit. <laughs> All right, second question. Your favorite Joe Biden meme? There's Joe, so many good ones. The Joe Biden ice cream meme is so successful <laughs> that we have friends who made a shirt of themselves wearing Joe Biden shirts them eating ice cream and Joe Biden eating ice cream. It's spectacular. It's so good that as someone who's got a little bit of a lactose thing, every time we walked into the Dairy Queen and I couldn't have the ice cream, I think it broke his heart and mine at the uh, same time. So it's true. He really loves ice cream that he much. He loves ice cream so much 
that we would often be done a day of events and he'd say, guys, can we go get ice cream? And we'd pull into a Dairy Queen. Did you ever find him like just eating a, a Ben and Jerry's like he, pint at the end of a long day? He is as real and sincere about this stuff as you can imagine. He loves it. And it's, I mean, first of all, who doesn't love ice cream? <laughs> yeah. Second no. of all, who doesn't love Joe Biden? So it's a lovely combination. But no, he, um, I think the Biden ice cream meme is probably my favorite, although there are a host of others that we can happily walk through if it were not a 30-second lightning. <laughs> uh, so next question is, would you ever re-enter, you know, the swamp of D.C. politics in 2020 and under what circumstances, if any? It is hard. I will say this to you. It's hard not to feel a calling right now, whether that's to work on issues, whether that's to work on um, whether it's a foundation or a nonprofit or a company or someone you think is doing good work, it's hard not to jump in. And whether that is actually jumping into politics, campaigns, or government, or for causes you hold dear, it's hard not to look at this moment and want to jump in. I'm sort of increasingly sort of joining boards and staying active um, and enunciating and sort of working on behalf of some causes I care about because this moment feels too important not to. Makes sense. Well, I think that's all we have for you, Scott. Uh, thank you for so much uh, time. You're very generous in sharing so many awesome stories. And like we said at the top of the episode, I a lot of what we learned from you is how you just respond to being thrown into crazy situations and just knowing that having the faith and the confidence in your skills and your tactics to be able to apply them to no matter what challenge you see uh, has just been really inspiring to all of us. Well, look, you guys, first of all, kudos to you guys for coming up with this podcast. Um, everyone listen and also this is a plug you should engage these geopolitics sessions are a blast from the speakers on through the weekly sessions on through if you're just mulling or you see a poster as you walk around campus you guys jump in it is fun because that is how I started I remember speakers that came to my campus I remember just sort of loving this stuff and thinking to myself how do you do this how do you jump in well the goal of a lot of us is to tie the hilltop to the city and the hilltop to campaigns in public service across the country and the world. And so I would encourage you to think about public service, to think about it. If you are even mulling it, I've loved not every minute of it, but enough of it that I'm still in it 20 years later. And I hope you guys um, think about careers in it as well. And if you do, you guys know where to find me and I'm happy to talk it out. But um, thanks for you guys for, for amplifying the work of geopolitics and for being a part of this. I know that your salaries are not exactly <laughs> enormous. So uh, um, you do this um, for the same reason I do. You care about the world around you. And I, I think we all appreciate that. So before we sign off, you, you set this up. If you ever want to mull it over with Mulhauser, <laughs> feel oh, free to, uh, to get in touch. Uh, I think that's a great episode name. So let's make that the title of the episode. Oh, God, please no. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming in, Scott. Really appreciate Thank you, it. Thank appreciate it. You're listening to Fly in the Wall. We'll be right back. Thanks so much for listening to this fantastic episode with one of our favorite people in the entire world, Scott Mulhauser. I know I learned a lot, uh, specifically about you know, the ins and outs of like the dirty ground game of politics. So how those things uh, get done in like those hand-to-hand combat, spinning the media, um, negotiation situations that, you know, we see and read about in the news, but, you know, all we get is the end result and very rarely do we figure out how it happened. So I think this was a, a very brand positive episode of Fly on the Wall. 
I also think it's an important lesson and reminder that being a nice person in DC gets you a long way. Uh, and I think Scott is, you know, the epitome of that idea. Um, and you can listen to Democrats, Republicans, independents, you know, anyone, everyone likes Scott um, and is always willing to work with him. Scott's going to give you, you know, his 100% thoughts. And I think that's a really good message for DC right now. Yeah, you can tell uh, he mentioned a little bit about it at the end, but even just hearing him talk about these experiences and why he's here and why he stuck around for 20 plus years is because he's he enjoys it. He sees the benefit and the good that comes from public service, which is a very geopolitics thing and is something that's very integral to our mission here. So that's why we love to have Scott around. And once again, make sure you follow us on all forms of social media. Subscribe to us on iTunes to help get this little podcast to where we uh, where we want to go the big time. So uh, we love your support. We love our fan base. And uh, we can't wait to keep making more of these for you. All right. Uh, next week, uh, we have a really exciting guest. You guys are going to love them. Um, and we are really excited to share their experiences with you guys. Uh, so thank you so much for listening. Uh, and tune in next week on next week's episode of Fly on the Wall. Bye. Bye.